Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Well, Doxedo Hatfield, let's open up our Bibles together to the book of Ephesians. We're in week three of our sermon series called Ethnic Blends. And I hope for you, as with me, that you have been encouraged and challenged so far in the Bible through God's Spirit. So in the series, we're saying that in Revelation 7, we see this picture of what's going to characterize the new heavens and the new earth. That around the throne and the, the cross of Jesus Christ, all these different ethnicities, it says, these nations come together to walk together, to worship together, and to work together. And so we're asking the question, if the heavens are not segregated, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church? And so we believe it's our calling to not be a multicultural church. We've got one culture, kingdom culture, to not be a multiracial church because there is one race, the Bible says, the human race. But we are called to be a multi-ethnic community in Twane of all these different groups coming together to walk together in friendship and fellowship, to work together for the gospel in the city and to worship Jesus together. So I don't know if you know this, but this passage that we're going to dive into today is regarded by many as one of the most important texts in all of the Bible. <laughs> and it's because it gives us one of the most vivid and most descriptive descriptions of what salvation in Jesus is all about, of the love and the grace of God. It's so expressive in its language. But of course, as South Africans, we need no lessons in expressive language because this mishmash that we have in our country has brought us all these great South African slang terms. When we need to express strong emotions, we use all these different words. So for instance, the word yebord means affirmative, of course, or Ubuntu. It's our common humanity. I am because we are. Or lacquer. We say lacquer when something is well, lacquer, of course, and, uh, you know, or shongololo, it's what we call those long kind of black millipedes, or braai. That's a word that works for all people. Why? Because a braai is when a barbecue becomes a cultural experience. And I was thinking, we need these words, because what are we going to call 2020, guys? Honestly, we need a phrase to coin this year, because what a 17 years in one year we've had. So let me give you a couple of suggestions. Maybe we can look back on 2020 and just call it Babalas. That's a great Afrikaans word. We can just think of 2020 when we're in January 21. Just think of the Babalas that was 2020, or just the word Aina. Aina, and I think of 2020, or the word Icona. I love that. Maybe that's our word, but the one that I would suggest I think we need to take when we think about 2020 is the South African slang, futsak. I think that is going to be the perfect word for 2020. It's expressive. And you see, when we get into this passage, similar things have to happen in our heart because we are confronted in this passage by something so astonishing, it leaves us stunned. It leaves us in silence, and it's that deep, stunned awe and amazement that leads to true transformation. So this Zulu word that I think is the perfect one as you read this passage is the word haibo. Haibo, that means stunned. I can't believe it. It's too great to take 
in. And as we look at the good news with fresh eyes, we're going to see these four movements captured in these four words. It's our past, it's his passion, it's our position now, and our purpose. It's our past that gets met with the passion of Christ. And now we are elevated to a new position and we are given a new divine purpose, cyborg, as we are going to read. So read with me Ephesians 2 verse 1. Let's dig into this first one. Our past. Our past is that we were outside without Christ. Verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Ivor! Paul comes out and he's not mincing words. He's saying that if I look back from Jesus into my life without him, that life is dead and not worth living. Why? Because he says that if you come to the conviction, which I think is the objective truth of the universe, that life is from God and life is lived in relation to God, then separation from God is equal to death. And so Paul comes in this one verse and he wipes the floor with two very deeply ingrained beliefs that we have in our culture. If people ask us, what is wrong with the world today? These two emotions come up from our hearts in 2020. And the first is this. We say, what's wrong with the world? It's other people. It's other people. You know, we believe there is something, all of us, we have it in us. There's this, there's this sense that there is a deep brokenness and a deep perversion and something wrong with society. But our inclination is to say it's because of them. It's those people, those other people. So we build our walls and we set our firewalls on the internet and, and we shut our doors to keep the evil away. And mostly it comes down to when you probe, it's people that are different from us. It's because of them that the world is wrong. So the ANC and the DA and the EFF, they all say it's the other's fault. Black people say it's white people's fault and colored people say it's black people's fault. Younger generations say it's these out of touch elder people and elder people say no, it's these self-centered young people. People in Joburg say it's those Cape Tonians. And the Cape Tonians say, well, you know, there's nothing really outside of Cape Town in any way. So they just leave it be. And the capitalists say, no, it's the socialists and the communists. And the communists and the socialists say it's the capitalists. And everyone says it's their fault. It's always the other. And the second thing that rises up in our hearts, what's wrong with the world? is that we believe deep down in my heart, I know I'm a good person. I'm basically good. Yes, you know, I, I get confused and I lose my way and I have weak moments and I don't realize my full potential, but I'm basically good. That's why the famous psychologist Carl Rogers, he kind of encapsulated this thought. He brought it into our consciousness to say that people are basically good. 
But what's happened is that, you know, these oppressive structures are keeping our goodness from us. And we've lost touch with our inner goodness. Friends, that is Disney theology and philosophy. You know, follow the goodness in your heart because it's there. Look to the inside because you are basically good. And here comes Paul with a double-barreled shotgun and he obliterates both these thoughts with the most confrontational sentence you will ever hear when he says, you were dead. He doesn't say them. He doesn't say the other. Those people, he says, you, you were dead. He says, you need to come to the place where you have such a depth of realization as to the brokenness, the depravity, the rebellion, how fatal and how deep sin is in your life. You know, G.K. Chesterton, he was this famous writer and philosopher and There's a story that goes that once Time Magazine, they sent out all these inquiries to a bunch of famous authors and asked them, what do you think is wrong with the world? And all these guys wrote back these essays and papers and just, you know, pages and pages of what's wrong. And G.K. Chesterton, he's a Christian. He wrote back simply saying, dear editor, I am. I am. He gets it. He understood the depth of the brokenness that is in his heart is pretty much what is wrong with the world. And that's why that second word, it's not just you that confronts us. It's this word dead. It's not just that you didn't, you know, fully self-actualize. You made a couple of mistakes. You had a few boo-boos in your life. You know, the structures oppressed you. No, he says you are dead. We often think, you know, that sin that Paul is speaking about here, it's a bunch of actions. That's what most people think. You know, it's lying and stealing and sleeping with someone else's wife or whatever it is. But Paul comes to challenge that to say that sin is firstly a condition long before it is an action. We are caught in sin. Sin is the water that we swim in and therefore we sin. You know, you don't say to someone, it's because You have gotten a runny nose and your eyes are red. That's the reason why you have the flu. No, it's because you have the flu. Why you have these symptoms. Paul is saying what's wrong with the world, the symptoms that we see internally and externally is because of the sickness that's called sin that leads to death. You know, I think of Jeff Dunham, the ventriloquist, he's got all these dolls. And, and by far my favorite one is what? Ahmed, the terrorist. Because, you know, he's literally a skeleton from the Middle East. And as they have their conversation and that famous skit of his, at one stage he tells him, listen, you do realize that you are dead, right? And what does Ahmed say? Like a good individualist. He says, no, it's just a flesh wound. It's just a flesh wound. Don't worry. I can make it work. And as Paul, through the Holy Spirit, comes to confront the heart of mankind to say, you, you are dead. What do we say? No, we we argue. We say, no, 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 I I can make it work. It's just a flesh wound. I'm just having a bad moment. I I can tip the scales. I I can be religious. I can do better things. I can give to the poor. I can really try harder. We don't get to this place where we realize the depth of our lostness. 
And so Paul says, I'm going to drive it home. If you don't believe me, let me tell you this. Number one, you walked in it, he says. And this is a theme that comes from the Old Testament to say that the life you live is the way that you walk. So kind of Allah, Psalm 1 verse 1, where it says, you know, how blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, Paul is saying, you reveled in this. You chose this. You enjoyed your sin. You saturated yourself in your sin. You walked in it previously. But he goes further. He says, no, secondly, you lived in the ways of the world. And in the Bible, that word world has many, many different meanings. But in this passage, Paul is most definitely trying to focus on the fact that the world is a system of belief where God has been put aside. He's been taken out of the picture. So he says, you are taking on that pattern of the world. You know, I, I, I listened to a song the other day where this artist said that God was a girl in my high school. And I think that's a, it's a little cheeky way to actually represent what all of us in our past have dealt with. Or maybe where you sit still today. Where I have set God aside according to the pattern of this world and I have made something my God. We don't have the image of, of wooden idols that we bow before, but it's much worse than that. I've said my career or, or proving to my parents that I'm not a bum or making sure that the person who's next to me brings me esteem or the fact that I, that I hurt myself emotionally to think that I don't have someone next to me. My friends, my health, my sexuality, my money, my car, my house, my future politics. Something has become my functional God and I destructively bow before it, Paul says. But he's not done. He's driving it even further home. So he says, not only that, but you also lived according to the enemy's ways, according to the ruler of the power of the air. So he doesn't name the enemy here very clearly, but he is most definitely trying to say, you are living according to the pattern of the evil one. And these ancient times, people believed that between, you know, here down on earth and in heaven, you know, as it were, that space in between the air was the realm of the spirits. So Paul is just using the lingo to say it's, it's living according to that evil pattern that your life is unfolding. You know, I remember one of my good friends from school, we would always go over to their house and he had an older brother, much older than us. And he was a wild guy. He was a wild guy. And so he would introduce us to all these things. There was a pattern in his life. So he would give us these kind of softcore pornography magazines and he would speak in graphic terms about how we would engage with the girls that he was going out with. And we all too happy to want to pattern our lives after that. Paul saying you were living according to the pattern of the evil one. And just when you, you're like, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. It's too much. Paul worries. He says, no, there's one last thing. He says, you lived according to your fleshly desires. You were ruled by your fleshly desires. And this is not a dualistic worldview where he's saying, you know, the heavens are good and the earth is bad. No, he's saying living according to the flesh means that I live in such a conviction that God is the final thing on my mind. Because the first thing on my mind is to gratify the thoughts and the desires that erupt from my heart and the tragedy that we see all throughout the Bible is that God has placed good desires, legitimate desires in our hearts. 
But we take those things, money, sex, and power, and we twist them into these illegitimate and perverted expressions that break us and our own souls and those around us. Paul says, this is how you lived. According to the flesh, its thoughts and desires. Once a young man came to me in a kind of pastoral capacity for help and he just blurted it out. He said, I'm a sex addict. I can't help it. It feels like it rules over my life. And I remember initially almost being shocked as a young pastor and, and then suddenly becoming a bit, you know, almost self-righteous thinking, oh, this, you know, this poor bad man. But as I listened to the stories and as he was unfolding how this thing works, I realized the seed of what he is saying of that sin is in my heart also. That's why the Puritan John Owen would always say that the seed for every sin is found in every heart. Paul lays the case and just when we're like, we can't take it anymore. It's too dire. It's too bleak. And we feel, Paul, you know, you, you speaking from this high tower, you this righteous person, we these evil, you know, horrible people. What does Paul do? In a shocking turn, he goes in the Greek and he speaks from the personal pronoun and he says, not just you were dead, but he says, I also. I was dead. I lived like this. You and I, all of us together. He looks at the past and he says, we were dead in our sins and therefore we are children of or sons of. That's a Semitic way to say you are characterized by. He says, sons, children of wrath. You characterize by that. That's why Jesus tells the Pharisees at one stage, you are sons of Satan. In other words, you characterized by the ways and the thoughts and the patterns of Satan, and he says, we are by nature children of wrath. And he's not trying to sketch this picture of God, you know, exploding just on a whim like some emotional teenager or something like that. No, he says, this is the righteous, holy anger of God against all sin. Why? Because sin destroys the creation of God. Sin robs the life that God so graciously gives. Sin is an affront. It dishonors the name of God, it's too much. It's bleak. Paul paints such a bleak picture. You know, it's almost like that movie, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith and his son, where everything just goes wrong. You know, his wife leaves him and their money runs out and the business fails and they're out on the streets and just one thing piled on top of another. I remember sitting in the kidneys watching that movie and I felt like I had to go and see a counselor halfway through. I just couldn't take it anymore. It was so bleak. Paul says that is the reality that we need to encounter somewhere in our lives, the depth of our brokenness. John Calvin, the, the famous French theologian, one of his greatest book, one of the greatest books probably ever written, his institute that starts with this line that says, all true knowledge is a combination of knowledge of God and a knowledge of self, of self. But we don't want to do that. It affronts us. That's why for me, you know, so many years of my life, I would put up my hand in a, in a whole period when someone would come and speak about spiritual matters. We would go on some Christian camp and I wasn't a Christian, but I would put up my hand in response to the gospel. Why? It's because I hadn't realized the depth of my lostness. I saw myself as a good person that just needed a bit of, a bit of help, just a bit of a leg up. And so just a bit of religion just sprinkled over my life. Just a bit of Jesus will help me. 
I didn't see myself in the depth of what Paul says, you were dead. And you tell me, Joe, that's impossible because I know some good people that are not Christian. And I say, of course, the Bible never says that you can't be a moral person without Christ, but it says your issue is not that you are a better or worse person, but that you are spiritually dead. Imagine walking around on a battlefield and you see all these corpses. Some of them have literally been blown up to pieces. Some of them just took a single bullet and bled to death. So some of them look better than others for sure, but they are all equally dead. And it's only, Paul says, when I come to that realization somewhere in my life, when I see the depth of depravity and brokenness and rebellion and sin, that I go, hi, Paul, it's too much. And it's in that context then, when it's too much, when my past makes me go highball, that then, Paul says, it's our past met with what? His passion. Yes, we lived apart from Christ, but now in Jesus, we are made alive in Christ. It's his passion. Passion doesn't just speak about love. It speaks about suffering. That's where that word comes from. It's, it's God entering into our brokenness and death and rebellion and suffering himself, taking it upon himself. That is where everything changes. So read with me. In that moment of dire realization, what does it say in verse 4? But God... The most important words in the gospel, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. (laughs) But God, Paul says, he says, yes, to my addictions to pornography. Yes, to me fooling around with girls. Yes, to my lying. Yes, to my self-hatred. Yes, to me wanting to prove myself before others. Yes, to my scheming. Yes, to my hurts from a broken home. But God, that is the beauty. It's his passion meeting our past. And he says it's not just his love, it's his grace. It's his grace. Grace means the completely undeserved commitment of God to us. It's the undeserved favor of God being poured out over our lives. We're not given the reason why, but it's found in the very character and nature of God. That in spite of our brokenness and rebellion, he comes and he gives himself to us. He connects himself to us. He marries himself to us. He rescues us. He redeems us. He restores us and he renews us. Instead of receiving wrath, we receive grace. That's why Paul can say in 1 Timothy 1.13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says God is not just some distant onlooker in this idea of salvation. No, he is the one who instigates. He is the one who acts. He comes into our space And on the cross of Jesus, he perfectly deals with righteousness and justice. And he pours out love and grace on us. 
You are saved by grace, Paul says. He shouts it out. It's an exclamation. And when I see the depth of my brokenness for the first time truly in my life, but I see the depth of the beauty and the grace of Jesus Christ, I go highball with tears in my eyes before God. But it doesn't end there. It's not just mercy that I'm going to relent. Oh no, God says it's even better. The good news is better than you think. Because it's not just your past being met by His passion. It's now that you have a new position. Yes, you were apart from Christ. Now you are alive in Christ. But now you are seated, He says, with Christ. So read with me verse 6. He says, He also, there's more good news. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul says what he said was true of Jesus in chapter 1 verse 20 that we speak about, he spoke about the previous time where he said he, God, exercised this power in Christ by what? By raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens. He says that which is true about him is now true about us in Jesus. It's true, he says, your location has changed. You know, we would always go on these sports tours and we would be hosted by the opposite team. And can I just say, I'll just be honest, we were shocking. Our hearts were shocking because we would stand in this queue and we'd look at the opposite team and we would try and gauge who are the rich kids because we want to stay with the rich people in the nice homes. That's just how we were. I'm sorry to say it. Why? Because location matters to us, people. People will ask you, oh, so where do you stay? Oh, that's interesting. This neighborhood, this house. Why? Because we attach the superficial value to people based on where they are located. And here Paul comes to say there is a greater reality than any natural reality you could ever face. It's a spiritual reality that as God exalted and raised Christ, you have been exalted and raised and seated with him at the right hand of God. And this is not an, this is not a practical picture. We shouldn't see ourselves literally on some wooden seat, you know, next to a bearded guy in the cloud somewhere. No, he's saying it's a spiritual reality that is more true than anything else in your life. You have been shifted to a place of victory and authority in Christ. It's glorious. And it's, and he says it's, it's specific. It's not just, you know, religiosity or going to church or trying to be a good person. It's in Christ. It's only in Christ. It's only when Jesus becomes truly my Lord and my Savior that I'm married with Him spiritually. You cannot separate the gift from the giver. It's in Christ that we are raised to victory, to authority. That's why Paul says, Romans 8.37, he says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, not in ourselves, through Him who loved us. 1 Corinthians 15.48, Like the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. Like the man of heaven, Jesus, so are those who are of heaven. Colossians 3.2, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why? For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
It's like those Russian nesting dolls that you, you just open them up and up and up. And there's, there's always like a smaller and smaller one. The world record for that actually has the biggest doll being more than a meter tall. And the smallest one is less than half a centimeter tall. So just imagine that whole day you trying to pack them out and there's another one and there's another one and there's another one. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter whatever happens to you in your life, what, what tragedy befalls you, what mistake you make, what stumbling or struggle or doubt that, that happens in your heart, the deepest depth of who you are, doesn't matter how deep I slice you, I will find you in Christ. What's true about him is now true of us. And we say, hi, boy, because this has to grip your heart. You're not simply forgiven, simply saved. You're just a sinner, you know, simply saved by grace. No, you've become a saint, a son of God. And you walk in authority in this life as a representation of him. You are called as a plumber, poet, programmer, pediatrician, as a pastor with his authority seated forever. It's final. It speaks about authority. It speaks about close intimacy with God that can never change. I think about my past. I think about his passion. And I think about the fact that he has positioned me and I say, hi, Paul. And then finally, we realize all of this, and this is where we get to multi-ethnic church, friends, because all of this is so that we would now have a new purpose. Yes, we were without Christ. We are raised to life in Christ, and we are found with Christ in heavenly places, but we have been set apart for Christ. We don't take up our life. We take up his passion, his purpose, his calling in this life. So listen to what Paul says, verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. It's God's gift. Not from work so that no one can boast. What? For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared ahead of time for us to do And something so incredible happens here when we think about multi-ethnic community. As Paul moves from speaking about you, you were dead. And I, I was dead. But then he moves finally in the Greek here and he says, but we are now made, recreated in Christ for good works. A multi-ethnic church is where the you and the I become and us in Jesus. Because it's not that you were raised. No, we were raised with Christ. We were wedded with Christ. We have been seated with Christ. We have been chosen, recreated in Jesus as his workmanship. You are not saved by good works. Paul says you are saved as a unified, diverse community for good works in this city. A healthy multi-ethnic church is where we always have in mind where we came from, the you and the I with all of its brokenness, the depth of its destruction, but we see so clearly the us that has formed in Christ. And I want to finish off by just, just think about this, the intention, because this whole passage is all these contrasts. And I think about the deep contrast of our past in this country. You know, 1950, in the, in the heart of the apartheid kind of architectural season, two acts were passed that changed everything for millions of people in our country. 
It was the Population Registration Act and the Group Areas Act of 1950. And the one basically said we are going to crudely just divide people into these random groups of of non-European and European and this and that. They had this infamous pencil test where an official from the government would shove a pencil into this person's hair. And if it stuck, according to them, you would be damned to a life as a non-European in this nation. And this Group Areas Act forcefully shoved people that were seen as non-Europeans into the urban outskirts with a subhuman standard of living and safety. Do you see the intention in the segregation? Friends, I saw the other day the reality that in November only of 1989, I was one year old already by that time. That was the first time that legally black people Indian people and colored people were allowed legally onto the beaches of South Africa. There was such an intention in the segregation. And we think just simply singing Kumbaya or some political party or some good-hearted movement is going to bring us together. No, friends, I want to show us that if that's the level of intentional segregation, pain, hurt, atrocity, and horror that our past is typified by, we will need something so powerful, so transformative, so gripping, so intentional in the way that it brings us together, that the you and the I become one. It's only in the gospel. It's only in the gospel. I believe that it's only Christianity, and it's only the church in this country that has the reason and the resources to bring deep reconciliation. Because nothing else goes to the very depth of our issues. And if we want to change on a personal, in an economic level, on on a spiritual level, on an emotional level, on a geographical level, if we want to genuinely deal with our past and come together first in the church and then as a country, it will have to happen when I see the depth of my past and I go, highball, and I see the passion of Jesus for me and I say, highball with tears in my eyes and I see a new position of authority and victory and strength and I say, highball, and then I see us being put Together, Paul says, the Jew and the Gentile, these ethnic groups brought together in Jesus. And I say, God, hi, Paul, my plans are now your plans. My resources are your resources. My future is your future. When I see you, when I see the good news, hi, Paul, have you come to that depth of discovery of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that any person hearing my voice today would fall on their knees and accept you, God, as Lord and Savior of the life. Not an inch of the old self would remain. But new life would erupt into their soul. And I pray, God, with passion today for Doxa Day or Hatfield and every other multi-ethnic church in our country to become the force for good, created for you, our workmanship for Jesus. Bring deep reconciliation in our hearts, in our city, and in our country. In Jesus' name, amen.